welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, LARB's Gender and Sexuality Editor, and I'm joined in the studio today with my co-host, Medea Ocher, who's LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. And today we have a conversation with Janet Fitch, author of White Oleander, which is what most people know her for, and for her new book, The Revolution of Marina M., about the Russian Revolution and one woman's journey from adolescence to maturity across the revolution. I appreciate that we keep sticking with the Russia subject. It makes me feel relevant to this show. Exactly. Very topical. It's very topical. I feel like I should encourage my family to listen more, though they have been ignoring my presence here. (laughs) (laughs) Your presence on the show or your presence presence in Los Angeles? I know that your your parents are not that happy that you're in Los Angeles. It's true. I should say that I was a huge Janet Fitch fan in high school when White Oleander came out. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't read it until college. It was a massive deal for me, and I was talking to a friend, and she responded, oh, my God, the 15-year-old me would be just crazy about the level of celebrity that you're going to meet today. So what were you so into White Oleander for? Uh, I mean, it's not terribly surprising, but I mean, like, what was grabbing you about the book? There's something similar about White Oleander and this current book, actually, The Revolution of Marina M., which is it centers around a smart literary young woman mm, right. who's a poet in this case. Mm-hmm. And I think in White Oleander, it's been years since I read it, but I think she's a writer she's, as well. Yeah, And the various sort of trials and, and tribulations of being a 16 or 17-year-old girl. <laughs> that is true, yeah. Yeah, and in a way that I felt was so smart and so accurate at the time and still, still do today. So 15-year-old me right now would be losing it totally losing it. I've managed to keep it together, but (laughs) it was so wonderful having Jana on the show. Okay, well now, real-time Dea and 15-year-old Dea can both listen to this conversation with Jana Fitch. That sounds great. We're excited to have Janet Fitch with us in the studio today. Janet is the author of several books, including most famously White Oleander, but also Paint It Black. Her most recent novel is The Revolution of Marina M., which we'll be talking about today. Welcome to the show, Janet. Thank you for having me. So, Janet, it's a novel that has Tolstoyan, Dostoevskian scope and ambition, also similar themes. Can you just give readers a sense of what the book is about? It's the story of a young woman, a poet, Mm -hmm. uh, growing up. She comes of age during the Russian Revolution, so it's her personal revolution and the country's revolution. Mm -hmm. And she is a privileged girl. She's the daughter of an intellectual family, a bourgeois family, but she chooses the revolution, and it ends up the family comes apart during the Bolshevik takeover of power. And she finds herself in the new life, in the revolutionary life. Janet, would you, um, just to kind of ground our readers in the narrative a little bit, can you just read one of the opening passages to the book? Yeah, it opens in the present of the voice of the book Mm. uh, at when she's already an emigre and then goes back to New Year's Eve, the brink of 1916, the middle of World War I in St. Petersburg which is then called Petrograd, St. Basil's Eve. Midnight, New Year's Eve. Three young witches gathered in the city that was once St. Petersburg. Though the silver sound Petersburg had been erased, 
and how oddly the new one struck our ears, Petrograd. A sound like bronze, like horseshoes on stone, hammer on anvil, thunder in the name, Petrograd. No longer Petersburg of the bells and water, the city of mirrors, of transparent twilights, Tchaikovsky ballets, and Pushkin's genius. Its name had been changed by war. Petersburg was thought too German, though the name is Dutch. Petrograd, the sound is bronze, and this is a story of bronze. Thank you so much. It's beautiful. Janet, so I was wondering, what what brought you to this subject? I had written a novel that failed before Paint It Black. Failed how so? Michael Chabon painted a very good picture of a certain kind of writer's block in Mm. Wonder Boys. Mm -hmm. There's the writer's block where you can't write, and then there's the writer's block where you just write and write and write and write, and nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened to me. And I ended up putting that novel away and working on a very small idea with three characters, and one of them was dead. Uh, (laughs) And uh, that became my next book. But there was a character from that first book that I, uh, the failed novel, that I just continued to love. And um, I wrote a short story about her, and I thought, oh, that could make a good novel. And I tried to expand it, but I didn't know enough about her mm-hmm. to be able to write her in America. I had to go back to Russia and the revolution to find out what happened to her. And so then I was writing about the Russian Revolution. Can you talk about the research phase of this, which I imagine from the deep context and the details in the novel was actually quite profound and prolonged? Yes, it was. Um, <laughs> I had a cousin who was working on a, also on a book about the Russian Revolution, uh, a relative of ours. And she was on year 14. Oh, my God. <laughs> and she said, don't do it, don't do it. So... Um, <laughs> I was a history major, and Russia was my subject in Okay, uh, so you have some background then. Oh, yeah. I fell in love with Russia as a junior high student. I took Russian in high school and Russian in college, and it was a matter of time before this would happen. But I knew enough about research rapture. You just love Mm -hmm. history, and you love Mm -hmm. stories, and you follow stories. And then one thing leads to another, as anybody who surfs the internet understands. And you find yourself very far from where you want to be and completely lost and with much time expended unnecessarily. So what I do is I research as I write. So I research Mm. what I am writing rather than just casting the net too wide. And even so, it took 10 years. (laughs) Wow. So this book was in the making in terms of both research and the writing for 10 years. Yeah. Can you explain kind of as a child, like what drew you to the study of Russian history and literature? Oh, well, there's so many different strands, like where does a river begin? I was, first of all, somebody who lived in my books. Mm -hmm. Um, I was an early reader and I couldn't I didn't care about my real life. I, I just cared about what was in my books. I think you'll um, find yourself among sympathetic company here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was during the Cold War, so mm-hmm. uh, Russia was the enemy. And there were all the spy movies and, you know, books and James Bond. And, <laughs> uh, and so that really, anything murky and forbidden, that's, that's where I'm at. Sure. And uh, then... My family's Russian, 
and nobody ever talked about Russia. So again, the unknown, like why don't they talk about it? What went on, you know? Interesting. So it just attracted, and then there was Dr. Zhivago in widescreen, <laughs> you know, with the little train going across the, that white expanse. Oh, yeah. I mean, you never forget that. And then when I was in junior high, I had like the familiar treacly girls literature that they gave people in those days. And uh, I was very disgruntled being kind of an intense person myself. And, and my father gave me crime and punishment. And <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay, now now we're talking. Like this world makes sense to me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, so just completely took the drug and uh, was lost to Russian literature ever after. So this was a perfect storm. This book was bound to happen. In all of your research, did you also sort of dig a little deeper into your family's history? No, that's one of the rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you try to stay... I'm not good with stories that actually happened because I'm a, a neck down writer, which means I have to tell the stories that are urgent for me to tell from inside rather than appropriating stories from outside mm. myself. I find when I ever I try to tell a story based in something real, it just becomes really flat because it doesn't allow the imagination. It doesn't yeah. allow what's inside me to uh, bubble up. So I try to stay more with the stories that I'm compelled to tell. So to kind of turn back to the novel, one of the things that it strikes me is a way of reading at least the first half of the novel. I should also tell listeners this is very long. So you will be in it for a while. And it goes through these beautiful kind of movements as Marina makes her way from basically like adolescence into adulthood. One of those ways of reading it is kind of around the Russian Revolution, the romantic sense of the revolution, and then the hard reality of what it is is something that Marina confronts, both being with people who, and this is typical of youth also in times of revolution, I think, where you're swept up in the romantic fantasy of it all, right? That you're with young people, you're discovering yourselves in all kinds of ways. And then the revolution changes people, right? So she has one of her friends becomes actually a secret police informant. And obviously, relationships with her family get tense. And she's forced to kind of endure hardship in a way that she had never had to endure before. So can you talk a little bit about that, about how kind of the reality of that historical moment leavens the kind of romance that both we as readers approach it and Marina as a kind of historical projection also Right. And it. I think that politically, a revolution does have those two sides to it. There's the idealism that some people go into revolution embracing it and not realizing the impact of profound social changes mm. that if she had not been 17, if she had been 27 or 37, her life would have been very different. But she was young enough to ride the changes. But she's a poet and she's observant enough that she doesn't cling just to the idealism and what she wants the revolution to be. She also sees what it is, mm. and it's a tension inside herself. And I find those inner tensions the most interesting characters because they see things 
two ways. Mm. They see the reality and their dream at the same time. Some people only will see the dream and they'll close their eyes to the reality. Some people will only see the reality and they'll close their eyes to what's possible. But you have a character who sees one out of each eye. That's the most interesting picture of a time and a place. Something that I was wondering also while reading the book and encountering passages of poetry from various poets that are sort of throughout the novel and Marina's own was how you felt your relationship with the Russian language perhaps change as you were writing the book because most of it is in English, obviously. There are certain words that appear in Russian and they become sort of little signals of, of the place and time. But it is ultimately a book that's in English. And so something that I was wondering is, like, how does one write in such close proximity to another language and yet for and that, an American and yet for audience? An American audience. Yeah. yeah, It was a dance. Questions came up like, the book should be in Russian. Mm-hmm. You felt um, that way. Yeah, it should be in Russian. I think of it as Russian. So I'm writing English. Do you want to eliminate contractions to show Uh a foreignness, or does that give a certain Mm -hmm. stiffness that shouldn't be there and would prevent people from entering the book? So I decided to use contractions, but you have to be very careful with metaphors that they would be true to the character. You have to think about the rhythm of Russian and make sure that the rhythms are there. Mm -hmm. So it's like a work in translation. I was thinking that, yeah. It's interesting because in some ways, right, it's like a work in translation, but written originally in English. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's which right. is a very interesting sort of... So it, it sharpened my sense of how one brings one culture into another culture. Mm-hmm. And maintaining like a little bit of the taste, the scent of the other language, Mm. but making sure that's, I mean, especially in a book like this, that's not just supposed to be for four people, but it's (laughs) supposed to be for, that anybody can pick it up and and Mm -hmm. understand it, but to bring them into kind of a Russian feel and a Russian sensibility. So it is like a bit of translation. I hadn't really worked with my Russian language since I lived in Leningrad during the Soviet time for a summer language program and came back and tried to keep it up. But, you know, it had been years and years since I'd really actively used Russian. And I found myself especially loving listening to girls, they were almost all girls, on the internet, reading their favorite poets aloud in Russian, and then finding those, what poems they were reciting and trying to translate them from the Russian for myself as I had that Mm. music in my ear. And usually I got it wrong. I mean, I had to use a bilingual edition, but, you know, really engaging the language on that level. And if people go to my website, they can find my YouTube channel and hear some of those girls. They're amazing. That's so interesting. I'm also curious, now that you mentioned that you lived there, what your experience was living there as uh, you said you were in college. Is yeah. that right? In college, did you visit recently for, for the book at all? Or Yeah, I was there in 77 as a student, and then I returned in 2007, Okay, 30 years later. Wow. And it was as different. If they hadn't been speaking Russian and I didn't recognize the mm. landmarks, I 
wouldn't know where I was. It was so changed, at least superficially so changed. When I was there in 77, there were no supermarkets, there were no cafes, you had vodka, you went to somebody's room, somebody had a guitar, you argued into the night about who was the better poet, Vaznesiensky or Yevtyshenko, mm-hmm. Vaznesiensky. And... Uh, <laughs> Going back and seeing people, you know, high fashion and, you know, there was Russian Vogue. There were these beautiful girls. I never, I don't know where they were when I was there. They weren't born here probably. (laughs) But I learned a lot about Soviet life when I was living. It was late Soviet life. But I learned a lot about the Russians when I was living there. There's long escalators coming out of the subways. And I saw a drunk passed out on another man who was holding him up and held him up for 10 minutes as the escalators went up. And it was clear he didn't know the guy. And somebody explained to me it was illegal to be drunk in public Mm. in Russia. So a total stranger held up this stinking drunk Mm -hmm. for 10 minutes rather than let him be arrested. And that's very Russian. So I got a taste for that. I went back these years later and walked the streets as Marina because I'm a very sensual writer. I need to feel mm. feel the place. And then I went back in 2009. I got a, a fellowship from a Russian foundation, the Likachov Foundation, and actually got in and talked to people at the museums. And that was a VIP treatment. That was incredible. <laughs> You're listening to LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in North Hollywood. We've been speaking with Janet Fitch, author of The Revolutions of Marina M. We'll return to that conversation in a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. Dan Lopez, our book recommendation extraordinaire, is back (laughs) in the studio with us today to give us another book recommendation. Dan is the author of The Show House, Out from Unnamed Press. Dan, what book will you be recommending? Always a pleasure to be with you guys, Dea. Today, I want to talk about a book called Ghosts of the Tsunami, Death and Life in Japan's Disaster Zone by Richard Lloyd Perry. This is, as you may remember, the tsunami in 2011 in March was super disastrous for Japan. It may have been the largest natural disaster that they ever had. Remarkably, very few people died, except in this one village. In this one village Mm. in northeast Japan, there was a school that was designated as the, like, emergency evacuation safety zone. Unfortunately, that school did not make it, and a huge percentage of the children and the teachers and townspeople that went there perished. So the book is this kind of exploration of, like, how that happened, how, by and large, Japan like survived this natural disaster. Like obviously we all know about the meltdown of the Fukushima and all that kind of stuff, but the tsunami's impact was not as severe as it would be anywhere else because Japan is by and large built to sustain these kind of things. But that same sort of cultural mindset that made it so that people would prepare for these disasters also led to this kind of blind obedience to this is the plan. We have an action plan. We listen to the authorities that tell us what to do. And everyone kind of ignored the fact that though this town felt inland, it was only like a few miles upriver from the coast. And as a result, many, many people died. So 
it's kind of an exploration of that. It's an exploration of death in general and how different cultures see it and what you do, like why you search for the answers. Like, is that going to bring your children back? Like, no, mm-hmm. but what's the drive that brings it back? And how does that inform our larger conversations and culture and how we prevent these things from happening in the future? It was brilliant. It was heartbreaking. There's these scenes where they describe mothers like wiping the mud off of like the dead bodies of their children. Oh, yeah. Like more mud just keeps coming out. And like, and that was like the first 30 pages. So oh, it's wow. definitely a downer of a read, but super compelling. And if you like that type of book, if you like books like The Perfect Storm, that kind of thing, that like look at a disaster. So it's a foregone conclusion what's happening, but they're mm-hmm. looking at that to kind of learn about the human impact of it. It's one you should absolutely read. Thank you so much, Dan, for that recommendation. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Yeah, absolutely. It's Ghosts of the Tsunami, Death and Life in Japan's Disaster Zone by Richard Lloyd Perry. Thank you. That was Dan Lopez, author of The Show House, out from Unnamed Press. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Janet Fitch, the author of The Revolutions of Marina M. Another central concern in the novel is sexuality. So there's, as I was saying before, there are kind of two main ways to read the novel. One is through the kind of political revolution, and and these are never entirely separate. And the the second one is to think about it as a kind of sexual revolution or a sexual awakening for Marina. Um, And you write very evocatively about her sexual experience in the ways that for someone's first sexual experience, it is that way, and then every sexual experience after that. Um, there, there, there is a way in which uh, I, I wanted to ask both why you decided to have that be so central and this kind of parallel line to the political revolution, and then also the ways in which as much as she's coming into her sexual self as a kind of awakening and a love of pleasure, particularly that first time with Kolya, right? She has, um, who is her, and it could not be more perfect. He's like just off from military service and they have a carriage ride that's filled with all kinds of wonders and, and delights. And she says something like, I, I never wanted to not have sex after that, or I wanted to have nothing. I can't remember the exact line, but she's very much into it. But then after that, it does seem like as much as she's experiencing a kind of sexual awakening or sexual liberation, sex doesn't really appear to be so liberating for her throughout. There's many times when she seems to be the kind of sexual object of men who wield her as an object because of power relations. And that made me wonder then, like, okay, well, is there a double-edged thing here where it's both a site of freedom but also a site of subjugation. Yeah, well, I think uh, our sexuality is probably the most complex part of us. And Certainly, people, yeah. I don't know why. I don't see people writing as much about sex in fiction anymore. I think it is full of these questions, things that, just like revolution, sometimes they start out as one thing and end up as another. And mm. you're like... You've allowed it in. You're you're there on the spot, and uh, I can remember having these kind of experiences where you think it's one thing and things get going, and it turns out to be very different. Mm. I think people, it's very funny. People have embraced the good sex. Everybody wants to read good sex, but nobody wants to read bad sex. You know, nobody wants to read when sex it carries a lot of other 
weight sure. in our lives. Sex can be pity. Sex can be bribery. Mm-hmm. Sex can be self-protection. Sex can be barter. Yeah, survival. I mean, it can yeah. be so many things. And I think that people are outraged that I don't just do the swoony, moony variety. Right. Uh, be- because... Not only, you know, have I been accused of being crass, but also I can see behind that also the outrage that somebody can parlay sex. But in women's lives, uh, this is part. This has been part of it. Um, mm. I mean, it's not something that's ideal, just like so many things. It's a very complex issue, and for someone who is a passionate person, open to sex, they're going to run into these things. And she's a very young person in a vulnerable situation. And she's really trying to find her way, in, sometimes in a very desperate way. Hmm. I wonder, I mean, something that this actually just makes me think of uh, as you talk about that and the certain changes that we see happen in the book, but also in real life, and that sex now, too, I think, seems to hold a very different place in Russian society than it did in the Soviet era, where... It is, you said, these are these beautiful girls. You don't know where they came from suddenly, right? They probably weren't born when you were there in 77. We have this, like, sort of strong man at the top of the Russian government and a sort of doubling down on gender norms throughout. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if there was a way in which the current political situation, the current social situation, both in Russia and in America, too, informed the work here. That's interesting. Well, I started it 10 years ago. So right. I didn't even <laughs> right, right, realize, right. you know, how it would change. Yeah. I think that uh, the, the Soviets, the later Soviets, the Soviets we've come to know, were very prudish. I mean, of course, yeah. they had sex, but, you know, they were very prudish. They weren't particularly um, focused on that as personal aspects of life. Whereas, the early Soviets, the revolutionary generation, that was also sexual revolution. Mm-hmm. That was women deciding that maybe marriage was a commodity market, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to participate in that. They, in many ways, that early revolutionary generation was the most modern generation on earth. They had abortion. They had right. uh, they had the outlawing of you know, bastardization of children that, you know, there was no such thing as an illegitimate child. They're children. Actually, while you're talking, it, it, there was a, a funny line that um, my my father sometimes mentions during a, a speech. I think it was either uh, Brezhnev or Khrushchev or w- one of those um, who announced sort of ceremoniously that uh, there's no sex in Russia. You know, I, <laughs> <laughs> um, and for my father, there was a, a real sort of high point about the absurdity of living in that kind of government, right, with with those kinds of leaders. Um, but it's also something that speaks to what you're talking about, right, where it's like the understanding of sex changed very much right. over the past Well, in, so, in Soviet time, not necessarily during the early part of the revolution, in which, in which just complete liberation uh, was 
definitely a part of the culture that women uh, were working, women, there, there was free right of abortion, there was, um, uh, women were joining the government. Um, I mean, it was more modern than any country in the world mm. in 1917 and 18 and 19. But what you're seeing now, because the Soviet culture was so insulated from Western advertising, mm-hmm. um, that with the fall of the Soviet Union, when I lived in the, there in '77, there were no billboards. There were no. There was no fashion. There was no. There were no stores to speak mm. of. You know, you could have the brown dress or the gray dress, and you'd get the brown dress. And women would go to the beach in their brawn panties, and sometimes very large women. And they just they all felt beautiful because they were women. Mm. So mm. they were beautiful. Mm. Of course, they were beautiful. And then comes the fall of the Soviet Union and the incursion of Western advertising, movies, magazines. And suddenly women were realizing that uh, there was a whole level of commodification of female, the female form and uh, selling you stuff and you're not good enough and and, uh, beauty is bourgeois. You know, that that kind of marketing of beauty mm. is definitely a, a bourgeois thing that, that hadn't marked Russia in 80 years. Well, that's I actually never thought about it that way, that uh, beauty marketing, in a sense, is also class aspiration, um, that it's it's imbricated in that way, that it's like uh, there's a kind of um, the commodification is also becoming something of more value. Right. Right. And it's also a, a something that by being withheld from it, then you develop an anxiety and then you try to meet those Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. externally conveyed ideals, which hadn't been there when I was there. And there was a relaxation about people and beauty, uh, women and their sexuality and beauty that really changed uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. And one of the things that I've I was curious about too um, while we're on the subject is when you're writing about sex, how do you do it? Right? <laughs> how do I <laughs> write about yeah. sex? It's, it's such a, it, it seems so difficult. I was going to say hard. Well, I don't want to go there. I think there. it is, um, you realize that the, it's not a part of the body that has mm-hmm. sex that makes love. It's the person that makes love. So you try not to part out the body. But when sex doesn't go well, when it's not good, the raw facts become much more prominent. Mm -hmm. Because you're you're not involved body mind and soul you know right. you you so it does become more harsher and more physical so the writing changes depending on on uh, how she feels about who she's that's so with interesting. yeah which is oh. exactly how sex actually is right. i mean that's one of the things is that the the kind of um to use a terrible metaphor, the rainbow spectrum of sex experience that you kind of uh, get into throughout multiple parts of the novel kind of runs from this, like, you know, incredibly romantic to horrific, you know. And in some ways, I was like, that is part of everyone's, not to some of the extremes, which I, I won't give away, but some of the extremes that happen in the novel um, is not necessarily part of everyone's experience. But that wide range, which is something that we often don't talk about and don't talk about in explicit terms, is something that you do engage right. in the novel. Right. You know, that there's more than the swoony, moony 
dreamy, creamy thing that we all hope for. Uh, there's also, you know, uh, people have sex out of pity. People have sex out of a barter situation. People have sex for a million different reasons and with all kinds of people whom you have very different relationships with. Mm. Um, one other question that I wanted to ask just in closing is there are several kind of classic themes um, that the book uh, traffics in, one of which would be this kind of uh, the revolutionary theme of the bourgeois scion, like the in this case, the the bourgeois daughter, who then kind of upends her class privilege and kind of dives into a totally new experience. So that's one of them. And then there's obviously also the incredibly romantic narrative of the Russian Revolution, which it seems to be something that I don't know if it's a particular moment right now, but we seem that always seems to be popular. Um, so can you talk about the enduring appeal of those kind of narratives and how you wanted to work within them? That is very interesting because the Russian Revolution is when I started writing, uh, was rather underrepresented in literature, mm. uh, except for Pasternak's, you know, except for Dr. Zhivago, uh, and some of the Russian, the Soviet literature, uh, which very few people read in the West. Mm. Um, the revolution was too complicated. People tended to, tended to write about the World War II, because clear good right. guys, clear bad guys, siege of Leningrad, Stalingrad, the war, um, you know, her heroism mm -hmm. writ large. The revolution was such a complex phenomenon where people were idealistic, people were struggling with what was actually happening. There were um, so many parties involved. Mm. Things started out one way and then became another. So is this a good guy or a bad guy? Um, you can't deal with the revolution that way. It was. It's a very complex thing. And I don't think very many people are writing novels about it. Uh, maybe now it's in people's minds a bit more. I think that must be what it is. It's just because you're right. It's not novels that I'm reading, but lots of studies of right. that period, right. um, which appear to be quite popular. Right. Well, it's the 100th, hundred hundred year anniversary. Right. Yeah. So I think that's that's part of the sort of resurgence. And we also suddenly again have Russia as the sort of... <laughs> Top of mind, yeah. Big, right. bad But not only guy. that, we're also living in a time with accelerated change where mm -hmm. we ourselves... I mean, I was writing about Marina and how how fast the world changed and changed again and changed again, that every week was like a year. Um, sounds familiar. That yeah. sounds and very familiar. I didn't, it was funny because when I was writing that, I was in the head of my character uh, in 1917 and 18 and 19, and it was only as I was finishing the book that I started to experience that personally mm. uh, in our time. So it turns out to be more timely than I had expected. What do you think? What purchase do you think fiction gives us on those kind of moments? Because to your point earlier that it's like you haven't seen many novels written about this period, contemporary novels, obviously written about this period. 
What do you think fiction does in terms of getting us a grip on either the human element that's happening during that or all of these complexities that you're describing? I think, you know, you use the term getting a grip on it. I think it's exactly that. What fiction does is allow you to handle these red hot materials that when they come into your life, it happens so urgently mm. that you do not have time to think about. You can't, it's very confusing. It's very urgent. There's no way to step back from it. It's overwhelming. And what fiction does is it gives you like asbestos mitts <laughs> that you could handle this very incendiary material enough to really look at it, to make some decisions. What would I do if I okay. was in this situation? Or, oh, it start one, pe- one group of people starts a revolution, but then somebody else steps in and turns it in a very different direction. And when do you notice that? And is that happening here? Do I recognize that happening? Uh, it gives you uh, a chance to think about things before you're in it. Yeah, that's interesting. Because that seems like a very, very difficult thing to do without some kind of external guide, right? And without some kind of text, really. I mean, at least for text people, I think. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've been speaking to Janet Fitch, the author most recently of The Revolution of Marina M. And it has been a pleasure having you in the studio today. Well, thank you so much. This was really fun. Thank you, Janet. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARV Radio Hour.